You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We are still going through Samuel, just getting back into it. We had, we had a little break, so we have to remember where we were, right? That was it, my problem. I couldn't remember where we were. I sleep and I forget things. So, but yeah, we're we're still in Samuel. Going to be there for a while, especially since we're going to go into uh, Kings after mm-hmm. this. And I'm really excited about going through all of that because when we do move to the New Testament, we're going to have a really good basis of Israel's history to to jump into some of the the things that the New Testament writers are talking about in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people don't realize how tightly the two Testaments are connected and why you need that background. Well, yeah, it's just a fundamental just. I mean, one one lack of 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 knowledge, and right? Two, you know, largely the church, whether they whether a lot of Christians admit this or not, <laughs> I know I'm gonna, yeah. But a lot of Christians have kind of bought into this idea that the Old Testament God is angry and vengeful, and mm-hmm. Jesus is kind and loving, and the you know they're two different. They don't won't say they're two different gods, but they will uh, act that way. Well, you know, I and I. The, and then, and in, in doing so, they separate the Old Testament and the New Testament in ways that they're not meant to be separated. Which leaves us wide open because when we're talking to non-believers or people who've walked away from the church, nine times out of ten, their critique of Christianity is out of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, when we have failed to teach the Old Testament and how it relates to the New Testament, Christians don't have that that answer in due season. And so by knowing these these stories and how they tie in, we can actually begin to I don't want to say defend the Bible. I, I I hate that, but you know, answer some of these objections and do so with compassion and love. Well, and, and a lot of the time, you know, the the answer to these questions, the fact, you know, they might actually be wanting to learn. Yeah. And and so, you know, we gotta actually be able to put it out there again, not as defense, uh, but as a way to, to reach out to people. Exactly. And I think we should be willing to try to answer any sincere questions. So if somebody's asking you about the Bible, you know, kind of assess, you know, are they just trying to be troublemakers and upset someone or are they actually trying to learn? And if they're trying to learn and you don't know the answer, you know, be willing to study and try to find the answers with mm-hmm. them. That's I've actually learned so much more that way by having people talk to me and say, "Hey, I don't know about this, or I need answers about this." And you know, taking a minute or two to actually go back and refresh my memory and mm-hmm. pull sources, mm-hmm. and and I've studied things I probably wouldn't have studied otherwise. And it's it's always amazing to me how often I do that. Well, it's like within a matter of like a few weeks, I'll have three or four people ask the same question. Yeah, And so it really sets me up well to be able to talk about this stuff. And I, I enjoy that. To me, that's the fun part of our faith is mm-hmm. when we get to go into those things that confuse people and say, I learned this and I'm excited about learning this and I want to share it with you, not in a preachy sort of way, just 
this is something that's really important to me. I love it. So yeah. let me share it with you. you know, whenever you get something, whenever, you know, most of us, most normal <laughs> people, whenever we, something great happens or we learn something mm-hmm. great or get something great, we want to share it. Exactly. So, exactly. So then there's us introverts who are like, I'm just going to hang out in my house. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, we both have seasons of that. And then there's times it's like, get us out of here. We need to be talking to somebody sure, else. Sure, sure, <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, it definitely depends on the day. <laughs> Barometric pressure and all that. Yeah. So, so, so where were we in the Bible? Okay, so we were in Second Samuel 7. We had looked at um, the conversation between Nathan and David about building the, the temple for God. And God comes back and says, no, don't do it. These are all the reasons why you shouldn't, and this is what I'm going to do for you as the king of Israel, and I'm going to adopt your son, I'm going to discipline him, but only in the way that a father disciplines a child, mm-hmm. not in that heavenly divine wrath kind of way. And then we uh, broke over and looked at a psalm for a little while, but now we're back in chapter 7, mm-hmm. and this is David's response to God. We got part of the way through it, and David had just talked about God freeing Israel from Egypt, because we need to remember that Exodus is such a central part of Judaism. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a central part because, oh, look, something great happened. It's because God literally took on the gods of Egypt. He defeated them. He made a fool of them. And this is the defining element of Israel. This is the God they serve. He's the God who is greater than all other mm-hmm. gods. And so this is often a part of the way they praise and worship God is by recalling that moment and celebrating what God did in history to say, if you're that big then, or were that big mm-hmm. then, you're still the same God today. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what David's doing here. So we're going to pick up in verse 24, which is kind of a weird place to to pick up, but you know... I found out a lot of our listeners binge listen to us, so uh, you know they're they're right on track. Yeah. <laughs> so I haven't edited this episode yet, so I'm still kind of going. Now, where did we leave off? <laughs> right. This is and you established yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. So David is saying, because you've delivered us from Egypt, this, this is who you are. You became our God because you delivered us, and. He's not just affirming what the results of these actions were. His words are a declaration that God's promises to Abraham have been fulfilled. And we talked about that connection between Abraham and David, and we're going to continue to see them. Yeah, and and we're also, you know, we also want to point out in the language here, it's not that God became some became God from something else. Right. He it's a status that Israel has decided that he is going to be the God they follow. Exactly, exactly. And they're doing it out of gratitude for God. So in Genesis 17, um, notice the words in here, it says, and I will give to, you, give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for, uh, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So we've got the very similar themes picked up in both verses, and it's reinforcing that, that tie back to Abraham that we've already seen and what we're going to see in the future. So verse 26, evidently I decided to skip verse 25 for some reason, uh, it says, your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. So we've got that wonderful reference back to God being the commander, the Lord of legions. This is standard title for for God in the book of Samuel. We first heard it from Hannah. And the thing is, the English kind of 
it obscures this parallelism that's going on because in verse 23, when God is driving out the people, driving out before your people, it's from before the face is literally the word. So God is driving out the people before his face. And in verse 26, David is saying that the people are being established before the face of God. And so that presence being the center of attention, being the center of God's notice and, and attention there in these verses really is a, the reason why Israel is so unique is because God is actually looking at them. He's paying attention mm-hmm. that they, they are the central concern of God on this earth because it's, it's been demonstrated through these, um, this deliverance and mm. now in the establishment of them in the land. So David's rule is a fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. Mm-hmm. And it's the result of God's military victory over the gods of Egypt. And so all of history is what, what he's saying is all of history has led to this point. And so when God offers this new prophecy to David, David is able to have absolute faith in what God is saying because David already knows that God fulfills his promises. He's fulfilled them with Abraham, so he expects the same from God for him. So verse 27, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel has made revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found the courage to pay, pray this prayer to you. So God's spoken, and David doesn't need to wait to see if God will do it. He, he can fully rely on what God said. And now he can boldly ask for what he wants. Mm -hmm. Since God has approached him, David has every right to step back in front of God and say, okay, since you're talking to me, I'm going to talk to you. Now, Brueggemann um, says David's almost overly specific identification of God is a way of saying that, number one, you're the God of Israel. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're the God who commands legions of angels, and I expect you to be who you are in your dealings with me. And so if this is your character, this is who you are who you are, and who you have been, I expect you to be consistent with that when we are dealing with me. And David's saying, I'm going to hold you to the promise of who you are as you demonstrated in your faithfulness to Abraham. And I should not expect anything less for me than what you did for him. Mm. So, I mean, this is a very bold prayer. This is not... Oh, dear Lord Jesus, we humbly seek you. I mean, this is David talking in these radical ways of expression towards God that, I mean, this is not fear and trembling of God. And so we we don't often think about that being a proper way to pray, but we're going to talk about why there might be a basis for it, not just with David, but also looking back in the past. So verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God, your words are true, and you promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So David's acknowledging, you spoke first, and now I can speak back. Mm. And he says this three times in in his prayer, verse 25, verse 28, and verse 29, and now. And, you know, God laid out the terms, and now this is the outcome of these terms. And he also uses the word forever. Now, the eternal nature of these promises is understood by the word forever or expressed by the word forever four times. Mm -hmm. Twice the word is simply olam, which is forever. Mm -hmm. 
And it just simply means a duration of time we, without a specified beginning or end. Now, in the Hebrew, you modify a word by adding a, a prepositional um, prefix to it. So you put a letter in front of the word, and it changes the meaning of the word. Okay. So... Use different letters to make different words. Uh, yeah, I mean, but specifically, <laughs> if you put this right kind of letter in front of a word, it illuminates a larger meaning of the word. So yes. So if you add a mem, or if you wanted to transliterate that, that would be like an M in English. And it refers to the farthest reaches of the past, okay. as far back as you can remember. If you add an L or a Lamed uh, to the front, now you're speaking to the farthest reaches of time into the future. Okay. So from, uh, you know, from the past to the future. So whenever we have the word uh, le'olam, which we find a lot in in Hebrew, it means to the ages. Uh, so to the future and to the ages of the future. Okay. It's a common prayer, uh, words in the Hebrew prayers. Uh, a lot of times you'll hear, if you listen to any kind of uh, Hebrew music, where they set these prayers to to music, and it, it's a really great way to kind of become familiar with these phrases is to listen to the mm-hmm. music. Uh, you'll find Vaed Olam, which is usually translated as forever and ever, and so it comes with this connotation of to the horizon and back is the word picture that goes with it. Okay, so. We only find the term le'olam, sorry, le'olam, twice in Samuel, and it's in this prayer. And David is very much following in the footsteps of Jacob at this point, where he is grabbing hold of God's promises, Mm -hmm. and he says, I want more. And, you know, if we go back to the episode on Jacob and wrestling with God, there's some uh, really good insight that when you put the two together, just makes it mean so much more. And he's basically saying, I want every blessing you have to give me. And this is what I was talking about, the brilliance of David. He Mm. sees who God has been, and he celebrates it. And he sees what God has done, and he praises God for it. And then he says, but God, you're still bigger. Mm. No matter how much goodness and greatness we've seen from you, you can do more, not because I deserve it or not because of who I am, but because of who you are. And, you know, he doesn't hide behind any kind of false modesty or feigned humility. He, he's very bold. And Brueggemann um, points out that this relationship that God has invited David to, um, he, he's declared that David and his family has been ad- adopted into the divine family and sons do not cower in fear of their father. Not when there's a loving relationship. Right. And so when you put that in the terms of a father-son relationship, where you begin to look at it in the, in the manner of how does a son talk to his dad? You know, is it, is it with this idea of you can't talk back, you can't uh, ask for things from a father? Obviously, that's not a good father-son relationship if you're in that position. Sure, sure. And, and Jesus even mentioned something about that. A couple of times. <laughs> so, but he, he asked, the son boldly asked to continue to delight in the blessing of the father. And he's saying, if you will bless me and you'll give me the tools to do what you've said you're, you want to do in my life, now I can continue to bless you. So, I mean, when you, 
it's real simple when you think about parents helping children out Mm -hmm. that, you know, a parent who has established, you know, their, their home, they've got their life together. They've got, um, their financial securities in place, their kids go out into the world. How many times does a parent say, Hey, let me help you get a house. Mm -hmm. Let me help you, um, have that car to drive so you can go to work. And they help establish that, that son. And in a human relationship, a lot of times what will happen is, you know, the child ends up taking care of the parent in the end. Mm -hmm. And why is the child able to do that? Because the parents were able to help the children. And, you know, that doesn't always happen, uh, you know, for whatever reason. But ideally, that's how it should work, Mm -hmm. is that, you know, family helps family. And when one member of the family is doing well, then all the members of the family should be doing well. Right. And so David's saying, hey, let me do well so that I can continue to do well with you. So this, um, this conversation with David is so new to, to the idea of the Bible, except for Jacob. And Jacob, you know, we, we talk about how he does wrestle with God and, you know, God's trying to leave and Jacob's saying, don't, don't leave. You've got to stay with me until you mm. bless me. And so for David to pick up on that aspect of Jacob, and we've already seen uh, previously in the book of Samuel that there are so many connections between David and Jacob. Mm. We shouldn't be surprised, but I think for a lot of us who are raised in a very traditional background where God is that God of wrath and fury and judgment, and it, to see that God's the man after God's own heart is the one that keeps coming back to God and saying, bless me. Mm-hmm. I, I want you to be a part of my life. I need you to give me these tools, and, and I'm going to hold you to your word, and I'm going to actually celebrate the fact that you will be true to your word because I can trust your character. Mm-hmm. And David's ability to trust the character, and I feel like I'm repeating myself again, but David's prayer is very repetitive. Mm-hmm. David's ability to trust God is based on the fact he knows his history. He knows his history as an individual, but he also knows his history as a nation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, for us, I think one of the things we can pull out of this story is we need to know our history as believers. We need to know our individual history, and we need to know the history of you know, Christianity, and this includes the history of Judaism, so that we can say, this is who God is. Yeah, because a lot of people, when they think of church history, they think that everything started in the first century AD. Right. It's, it goes back so much farther, and, and the story didn't just, com- we didn't just completely start a whole new story with the resurrection. From that farthest horizon into the past, yeah, you know, and, and you know, I actually had students who, um, when I taught Old Testament lit and I was teaching college classes, I had some students who said, "We don't need the Old Testament; we just need Jesus." Mm-hmm. And I mean, now I had them convinced otherwise by the end of the class, right? But I found that that attitude is so prevalent within the church today. We we don't need the Old Testament. We just need Jesus. Well, how do you think he got here? You right, know? right. Well, so, and, and I mean, the sad thing about that is you were actually talking like those, some of those were apparently preachers who'd been preaching for years. Uh, that yeah. one, yeah, th- these were, that particular set of students were younger um young men who hadn't preached much, but yeah, they were talking to congregations and their goal was to continue preaching. And so this is one of the reasons why I take education so seriously is because 
when you go out to talk about the Bible, and this is for anyone, whether they're a preacher or, you know, just an everyday Christian, we need to represent it well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it goes back even to this prayer where David's talking about God being his father. When you talk about your father in public, you need to accurately represent him and you need to say things that honor him and mm-hmm. you need to be able to present him well. And you can only do that if you know who he is. And so the Old Testament really does present this imagery of God where he is a God who defends and a God who protects. But if you don't know that, then what you get is, oh, he's a God who just wipes out nations because they displeased him. Right. You know? And that's that's what the gospel gets reduced to whenever you have that attitude is, oh, well, we couldn't follow the rules, so God had to... You know, I, I've actually seen a meme where it's like, we couldn't follow the rules, so God had to kill his own son. And it's like, that's that's the message people are getting mm-hmm. from these bad representations of the gospel when it's so much more dynamic than just that. I, oh. I mean, it, and we could go on and on about that. But, you know, the other thing I just wanted to tack on with this, you know, the, the Bible is God's word, right? Right. And there's a lot of information there. Mm-hmm. But you were talking about people who wanted con- that they were preaching and wanted to continue preaching and wanted to basically make you know become pastors. Mm-hmm. Like, why wouldn't you want more information? I mean, if you're going to be presenting every week, right, for the rest as, of your life, yeah, for <laughs> the rest of your life, you want as much as you can ha- as you can get a hold of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you're familiar with that, right? Apparently, <laughs> <Yeah>. we. <laughs> Well, and it gets addictive. That's the that's the other thing. Once you really dive in there, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast. It's a really great way to justify all the research mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. I would have been doing anyway. And, you know, and we're recording, actually, this is Easter weekend. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. And so uh, while we're recording here, you know, I actually saw a friend of mine, she had posted about um, how barbaric this weekend is and how much she hates it because she has that attitude of, well, God won't even let you live your life as a human being without finding some kind of fault. I'm paraphrasing here, without finding some kind of fault in you that is deserving of punishment. So he did have to kill his own son because we're just so horrible, but he made us that way. And so we can't escape it. Who wants to follow a God like that? Right. And, and I mean, really, it's, it's breaking it down, making it sound like just some vindictive parent going, you broke the rules, so somebody has to die. Go grab the dog or whatever. Mm-hmm. and you know yeah it, it's not it it's totally not because it is giving of himself it's, exactly but that we can again we can go on <laughs> about that for hours and hours so um well and I, I i think this is where actually getting back to what the bible actually says and looking at it in totality or as you know as much as we can we begin to see how even the worst acts of violence actually become um you know expressions of love Mm-hmm. And, but you have to have the context. If you don't have the context, then you're going to miss it. And it's easy to twist it into something it's not. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why those memes going around and all those little Facebook snippets and tweets, and they shake people's faith is because they don't know this. So we're actually, we're going to move ahead. We're in, we're in second Samuel eight now. So this was a really hard chapter for me. I'm just going to be just honest about that because it is that list of battles that are being fought and all these victories. This is the way I feel like if we're going to have the Bible read like a history book, Mm -hmm. this is where it reads like a history book. And this is why everybody hates history class. Yeah. Well, it's, 
who was it? Was it N.T. Wright who was talking? Uh, we're talking about how the the biblical texts were carefully edited and selected by the people who put them together in order to tell a story. And it's like when you get into chapters like this, it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> right? <laughs> it feels like, and then it's like listening to a toddler. And then we, and then we did, and then we <laughs> you tune out about halfway through. So. Instead of going through this like verse by verse, what we're going to do is we're just going to hit some some high points mm-hmm. and some interesting things. If you want to know the the um, the totality of what it says, you hopefully you have a list. Open your Bible. It's exactly. There. So the the central message of this chapter is actually in verse fourteen, and it says, "And the Lord gave victory to David all around." So that's the point. David's winning all of these battles. Mm-hmm. And that's the the one thing you need to know. And it's not just one or two battles. It's numerous battles on many, many fronts. And so you're supposed to be impressed by the fact that God is doing this for David. God is fulfilling that promise mm-hmm. to David, which is actually the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And so one of the things we need to know about this list is it's not a chronological list of David's battles. So you aren't going to go through it and go, okay, he fought this group first and this group next. And then that's, that's not how it was written. It is a geographic display of the extent of David's victories. Mm -hmm. So um, when we get to Philistia, that's the victories in the, the farthest reaches of the West. When we talk about Moab, we're talking about victories in the East. When we're talking to Aram, then we're talking the North and Edom in the South. So this, this huge um, conquest of the lands around Israel that had not been taken over and claimed in the initial conquest of Canaan. Right. And so um, the chapter opens with David having victory over the Philistines in a city that the writer of Samuel identifies as Metheg Amah. Now, we don't have the name of the city anywhere else in the Bible, so we have to look over at First Chronicles. And remember, Chronicles parallels and follows a lot of the teachings of Samuel, so a lot of times they'll lift it word from word what Samuel said. But First Chronicles 18.1 reads that he took Gath and its villages. Now, Gath, we should remember, is the home place of Goliath, so this was a major city of the Philistines. Uh, if you remember back to the first of First Samuel, we know that there's five Philistine cities. So the question is, why is it important that David took this particular city? One possible reason is that Gath is the home of the king, while all the other cities were ruled by governors. And so in we know in first from First Samuel twenty one eleven that this is where King Achish ruled. And so in taking on Gath, where the king lives, David is actually fighting a battle of equals. He's not going after the lesser folks. He's actually saying, I can take on your biggest guy. Yeah, and, it, and if you need some visual help with some of this, if you go, most of your Bibles in the back will have maps. A pretty mm-hmm. common one is David's kingdom, Saul's kingdom. Like it has it listed out where they expanded Israel to during their tra- during their reign. If you don't have it in your Bible, Google it. Look at Google yeah. Image. You can find it. It's it's all there. That's the great thing. There are no hidden bits of information about the Bible anymore. We're, we're getting them all out there. So that's the really fun part. And so um, there is a a strange word in here, and it says that. Um, Let's see if I can find that first because, whoops. Um, I forget to write it down. I did. 
he took it out of the um, the hand of the Philistines. But there, there's in the Hebrew, and I don't know where which one of the English words is translating this directly. But there is a bridle of the arm, and um, is one of the ways of saying it that when it's describing the king of of um, of Gath, mm-hmm. and so the everything under his arm had been bridled and was under the power of the centralized king so that everything that was under his rule now became something that was under David's rule. Okay. And so by defeating Gath, he didn't have to fight the other one. When you take out the head guy, everybody else that he was over becomes your slave and servant. Okay, that makes sense. So um, now there's some debate about how thorough this defeat of the Philistines was because if... Ekish is the king at Gath at this point in time, the, and, or and it's not a title for, um, for the king of Gath, then he's still king under Solomon's reign. So basically what we're saying is, we talked about this before, that Akish could be an individual's name or it could be the title. Mm-hmm. So if we have later on another Achish show up, we need to know if it's an individual or if it's just another king. So is it this specific person that David fought who shows up under Solomon, mm-hmm. or is it just another king of the Philistines? Gotcha. If it is an if it is the same person, we have to ask why didn't David kill him? Because if you remember back with Saul, when Saul didn't kill the king of the Amalekites, King Agag, Mm-hmm. There was a problem there. Now, the, the rabbis speculate, and you've always got great speculation, that David left Achish some role as kind of an administrator over the Philistine cities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is possibly done as a reward for the time that David spent among the Philistines when he was on his run from Saul. Right. Now, what we do know is... There's no record that the Philistines were attacking Israel when David goes out against them. In this whole list, nobody is attacking Israel when David goes out. And so the idea that is being presented here is that David is the one who instigates all of these battles that follows. And he starts with the Philistines because the Philistines are the primary enemy of Israel at this point in time. And mm-hmm. they have been ever since the day of Samson back in that last part of Judges. Right. So this is going back a very long time. And now Samson, when he took on the Philistines, he never won any kind of battle of national significance. Uh, right. he, he doesn't he gain... He always little skirmishes and personal assaults. Yeah, for personal insults that he felt that he mm-hmm. had uh, you know, endured. Uh, most of them he brought on himself. And right. you know, if you're curious about Samson, we do have several episodes over him because he's such a weird character in the Bible. But... Um, Saul, when he fights the Philistines, he never gains any land. He just barely manages to keep them at bay. Mm -hmm. And David actually goes in and managed to regain this land that God had promised back to Abraham. So he's he's fulfilling the promises given in Genesis and and taking away from the Philistines what was supposed to belong to Israel. And we have to remember that one of the primary reasons why Israel wanted a king to begin with was to fight the Philistines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was the enemy that set them over the edge. And this is really 
the last time that we see the Philistines with any great significance, now there's one other spot that they're mentioned in David's story, but even there, it's not a big deal. And then after that, we see them with Hezekiah uh, in 2 Kings 18.8, and all that's said about them there is, well, Hezekiah beat them again. I mean, so they cease to be a major threat. So the next war that David fights is on Moab. Now, Moab was originally protected under the Torah. We talked about this, Mm -hmm. that, you know, their family, they are the descendants of Lot. And so they're included kind of under this protective umbrella up until the time when we get to Numbers 21 and 22, when they had the encounter with Balaam. And so in, well, sorry, 22 to 24 is where they're at. And God revokes the protected status of Moab at that point because Moab attacks Israel and refuses to help them in their journeys to the promised land. Right. So Numbers 24, 17b says, A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So by defeating Moab, David fulfills this prophecy given back in the, the wilderness journeys. Okay. So we see there's, that, again, that continuity from Abraham through the Exodus. And there's some debate too. And I love it when there's debate because it, the debates, I know they scare a lot of people and people are like, oh, well, if we don't have a clear cut answer, you know, how can we know what's true? But for me, the debates are fun because they actually make you wrestle with the scripture. And you're always going to learn more when you wrestle with scripture and you try to figure it out rather than just accepting an answer. Right. So, the debate is why in well, the Well, you're also more likely to know sorry, you're Go also ahead. more likely to know how to apply it as opposed to if you're just exor- absorbing information and go as, as though they're facts you should just accept and move on. You mean like if you just had like flashcards with point by point know this, know that? Yeah, which <laughs> it really is kind of the worst way to learn any of the Bible stuff. It, it really is. But you know, when, when you have these conversations, and I think that's one of the reasons why you and I have managed to hang on to a lot of information is because we've had someone to talk about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we've had all these conversations over and over again. And so it, it kind of, it facilitates that memory. And there's a lot of times that we've talked about controversial things and, you know, how do we interpret this and how do we apply that? And, you know, a lot of times we don't come up with a great answer. Sometimes we just speculate and think, mm-hmm, well, what mm-hmm. if? And there's value in that. And I think we've become a society where we're so focused on you have to get everything right. You mm-hmm. have to have that right answer. You Everyone know? has to be an expert before they can speak on something. Yeah. You know, just lots of... Well, and this is, that's the thing. Whenever you realize, no, you don't have to have an answer. You just have to be willing to learn. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the answers will come. It, it may be, you know, in eternity. Who knows? You know, long after we're dead, oh, God yeah. may have to sit down with us and go, okay, this part here, you totally missed it. Yeah. You and, know, and, <laughs> you know that, and that's, that's something that, yeah, we may have to deal with. And that's fine. I, I mean, God's God. He's, if he's right and I'm wrong, I'm being... <laughs> That's probably the best option we can have. <laughs> There's some things you really don't want me to have been right about. <laughs> and so, but that, and that's the thing. When we learn through these discussions, we, we learn not just a point. And, and I think this is the big thing. You don't just learn a point to win a trivia contest. Mm-hmm. You, you get context, you get depth, you get layers. And mm-hmm. that's not always easy to sum up in a point or a single sentence. Right. Which is why it's taking us so long to go through the book of Samuel. <laughs> so, 
But um, the the debate here is why Moab? Why go after the Philistines? We know they're you know the big bad and ugly enemy of Israel, mm-hmm. but why Moab? And their suggestion, and this actually I think makes some sense. I'm not sure I completely agree with it. Is that when David? You gotta remember when he was on the run, he sought refuge with Moab, and we talked about how that made sense because mm-hmm. his grandfather was a Mo- uh, was the son, uh, or great grandfather was the son of Ruth, who was a Moabite. Mm-hmm. And so, in First Samuel 22, um, David takes his his family to Moab. The prophet Gad shows up and says, "No, you need to go to Judah." Now, tradition claims that. When David left for Judah, he left his family there uh, in Moab. And while they're under the care of the Moabites, that the Moabites slaughtered everyone. Now, the scripture never specifically says what happens in Moab. So all we have is tradition to speculate on. But it would make sense that something horrible did happen that provoked David to doing this, to, to seek some kind of retribution. And the idea that this kind of provocation would require a major event. Uh, isn't that far-fetched? Another reason why the victory over Moab stands out is what David does. Uh, he, he lays the men on the ground, and he measures out two lines to kill, and he spares the third line. And the, the third line of survivors, they stay alive, and they're slaves, and they pay tribute to David. And it, this is completely bizarre. Every commentator I read either kind of just brushed past it or kind of threw their hands up in the air and said, we have no idea. Right. Because there's nothing like this in the rest of the Bible. Uh, So far to date, uh, we don't have anything like this in any of the other ancient Near Eastern stories. This seems like something that David came up with out of his own head. It's so troubling that the writer of Chronicles says, We're not even going to include that. Right. It tells these, and this thing, it tells the same story. It just leaves out the two lines that talk about this particular act. And so I I don't, you know, if this many smart people don't have a great explanation for that, I'm not going to pretend like I have a great explanation for that because, you know, we do know that David was ruthless. And I think we, we need to remember at the same, you know, at, while he's a man after God's own heart, at the same time, he is a warrior king. He has been called a terrorist by Nabal. He is not some kind of meek and mild little kid sitting and playing with sheep. He mm-hmm. is the one who fought lions and bears. And yeah, by, by this time, he's had some fairly transformative life experience. Exactly. I mean, he survived how many attacks by Saul? trying to kill mm-hmm. him. He and 600 men have been on the run. And so you know, his, his patience with the world is kind of gone at this point. And I'm not saying that makes it okay what he did. I don't know why he thought this was the right thing to do. And we don't even know if God condones it because the scripture doesn't give, it, give us any kind of indication. It simply tells us it happened. So Moving on, uh, next. Well, one thing I do think it's interesting is in the JPS it says he measured out with a, he, he measured them off with a cord. On the oh okay yeah I didn't ESV check. it says lines. So yeah, I didn't look at the JPS. That I don't know would if be... there's any significance there, but I mean based on what you just said, there's probably 
a lot of confusion about it anyway. There really is. And, you know, and I think we need to be okay with the confusion on these, on these trouble, <clears throat> excuse me, troubling stories that the confusion isn't, it isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think it really is a representation of we're dealing with real people who do unpredictable people stuff. And, you know, how many times have we known someone and think we know them and we, we thought we had them figured out and they do something that we totally don't expect because they are human beings and David is a human being. Mm -hmm. So David next, he, um, he defeats Hadezer and the son of Rehob and the king of Zobah. Now, Hadezer is extending his own kingdom at this point. And he, it's moving past the Euphrates. And David is actively extending the reign of Israel. So the two are going to bump heads. This is something inevitable. And we're right. actually we're going to have more specifics on this particular battle in a later chapter. Because this list, it tells you, okay, this is what happened. But then later on, Samuel, <clears throat> excuse me, Samuel's going to pick up um, specific events and tell us a little bit more about them. In detail. Mm -hmm. So God had promised to Israel that they would extend to the Euphrates. This is in Genesis 15, 18, from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates, Exodus 23 to 30, 23, 31, from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, to the wilderness of the Euphrates. And then we see again the promise repeated in Deuteronomy uh, 1, 7 and 11, 24. Now, Saul had made an attempt in 1 Samuel 14, 47, but Saul never won a battle or victory decisive enough to make it stick. Now, David, in his win, he captures 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. Now, in Chronicles, it says that he captured 7,000 horsemen. And now, when you have... Such a just, it's a contradiction. Samuel says one thing, Chronicle says another, and this kind of contradiction is very troubling for people who want to claim the inerrancy of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And when people say inerrancy, we, we need to watch how we use that term because it means different things to different people. Right. And, and one of those meanings is that the Bible as we have it, any Bible you go pick up on a, on a bookstore shelf is going to be completely without flaw. There's not going to be any mistakes, which we know that's not true. We have so many um, examples of where printers messed up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I, I have one where they forgot to run Acts back through for the red ink. So there's places oh no. where Jesus is supposed to be talking. There's nothing there. <laughs> That's fun. So, you know, so we do have those, and there's people who recognize that and say, okay, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, there's some people who say inerrancy means that only in the original manuscripts do we have no errors mm -hmm. possible. The problem with that argument is we don't have the original manuscripts. We're never going to have them. Um, you know, even if we found them, how would we know that that, that was the first? The very first one, yeah. Exactly. Um, but we need to make peace, I think, with the fact that human beings were part of this process. So you do have certain areas where there are just straight up contradictions, mm -hmm. and one of them has to be wrong. And I don't care how you justify it and how you try to 
to work out uh, some kind of way of explaining it, one of them's wrong. And the question is, are we going to let that shake our faith in this word as being divinely inspired? Right. And so if, you're, if your faith is founded completely on there being no mistakes on the Bible, somebody's ready to tear it apart and they're going to be able to do it. Right. So you need right. to have faith in the God who's bigger than the Bible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but a couple of uh, solutions, since we are here to talk about all the stuff, is Radek, who's one of the rabbis we talked about before. He claims that Samuel only counts the officers, Chronicles only counts the foot soldiers. Uh, uh, Chronicles counts every soldier. So, okay, maybe. Doubtful. uh, Because you got to remember, there's hundreds of years between when Samuel was written and when Chronicles was written. Right, right. Or it could be a scribal error. Imagine that. And (laughs) so when in doubt, the writer of of Chronicles is always going to pick the number that makes David more impressive. Right. That that's just the way it is. So we are told that David keeps a hundred horses um, for his chariots. So the or sorry, horses for a hundred chariots. So this means a total of four hundred horses, because each chariot was pulled by four hundred by four horses. Say four hundred horses to one chariot, that's a long lead line. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Well, you gotta remember too at this point, and we're looking at chariots that are primarily constructed out of iron and brass. Right. They're bronze. So this They're gonna is, be kind of weighty, yeah. Yeah. So they're really heavy. So we got four horses. And then the ESV, and I didn't look at the JPS, but the ESV translates this as he hamstrung the rest. If you work with horses as I have, and if you love horses, this is just horrendous. Um, if you hamstring a horse, you have crippled it for life. It, it's not good for anything at this point. It, it would just be an agony. And, you know, this is troubling for, for so many reasons because this is not something you want to see. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of talk about how, how do we deal with this? Uh, one is that David is doing this because Israel, due to the nature of its landscape, it's really not conducive for warfare conducted with chariots. It, there's just, it doesn't work well with the rocks and the valleys and the hills. You need these wide open plains in order for chariots to be effective. So David doesn't want to take, take on the responsibility of caring for all these horses. And so he just renders them useless and he leaves them, which that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, Horses are really expensive to take care of. Uh, Anybody who has a horse knows this, that it's been true throughout history. And especially in Israel where, you know, grazing ground is really protected for animals that you're going to eat. And it would have been a really huge um, strain on, on David's treasury to take care of these. Now, um, the idea that giving them back or allowing Hada, Hada Ezer to, to take back these horses would, is also you know, foolish. You don't want to rearm your enemy after you defeat him. But we do know that David, as king of Israel, was not allowed to have a number of horses. If we go to Deuteronomy 17, 16, it says, Only he, and it's talking about the king, 
must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord said to you, you shall never return that way again. So one argument here is that David is doing this so that it's, there's no mistake that he, about him keeping the horses. He's not, you know, putting them out to pasture so he can go gather them up again later. He's being obedient. He's being devout and he's honoring the, honoring the Torah. But the problem is, in doing this, this hamstringing of the, the horses, we are violating every principle that the Torah lays out for the treatment of animals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can kill an animal, but you cannot torture an animal under the Torah. Right. And a, a death for an animal that was going to be eaten needed to be quick. It needed to be painless. Uh, I've actually seen video of a kosher killing mm -hmm. that's done today. Most of the time, the animal acts like they don't even notice it. Right. And it's a quick slice to the neck, uh, just nicking the, the artery, cutting the artery, letting mm -hmm. them bleed out. They go to sleep. It's over. The, there's no sign of distress with the animal. Uh, as a matter of fact, even today, if the animal appears to be in any kind of distress uh, or it's kind of a traumatic uh, event, that animal has to, the meat has to be donated to charity. It cannot be kept. Now the um, the rules for that is that are those recorded in Deuteronomy? We actually don't have the rules. That's okay. the funny thing. We don't have the rules for how to to do a kosher killing and butchering of well, an not, animal. Not the kosher killing, but just uh -huh. you said that this what David's treatment goes against the Torahs. Mm -hmm. uh, where, where exactly would that be? Well, the 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 Torah. It's not necessarily that you don't torture. It doesn't have it spelled out plainly. But when we're talking about the treatment of animals, it, it's always you know like the driving the mother bird away. Right. So, so you, she's not in distress when the eggs are eaten. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was just I was curious. Is that Deuteronomy? That's Deuteronomy. We'd have it. Yeah, Deuteronomy. We I think there'd probably be some stuff in Exodus too about you know, just. But I would have to look those up specifically. Because yeah. so I'm curious too, because and this is just throwing this idea out here. The how much of the cure uh, there's there's debate as to how much of the torah they had at this point in israel's mm -hmm. history if deuteronomy had been lost i know that's a big question right and so uh that that tends to to ask is like how much of that are you responsible for if you don't know no. right and so that's leads into a lot of other theological questions uh, <laughs> this is true. Which which we could go even farther with, but I'm I'm just well going to put that out there for people to think about. Really. Yeah, well, and I, I think that that's one of the things that we kind of look at the when I say the Torah is not for the torture of animals. Uh, you know, we have to look at the principles of how that they, they're dealing with them. Uh, the the Passover lamb when they're getting ready to go into to, out of Egypt, they they bring it into the home. Mm -hmm. It's with them for you know a week, and which this is something that I always found to be interesting. You bring this lamb into your home. Mm -hmm. You've got kids at home. What are they going to do with this lamb? It becomes the family pet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it becomes something that you you care for and you you make sure that, you know, it's protected because it can't have a blemish. Right. And so you teach these children how to protect it and how to defend it. And then you feed the lamb to them. Now this seems horrible for a lot of people who have never grown up on a farm. This is something we, this is normal for us. So if mm -hmm. we sound a little callous about it, I'm sorry, but we grew up on a farm. Yeah. And you knew that the animals you were playing with and petting and spoiling rotten were going to be dinner next week. Right. 
And that was just a way of life. And when you grow up with that mindset, it's, it's not traumatic. And you want those animals to be in good shape and you want them to have a good existence up until that point. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a necessary thing. So, um, I did have a coworker who, who's, uh, I'm not going to take too much time on the story, but it's kind of, uh, apparently their either parents or grandparents had cattle and they lived there and they got to see them. And then, and it wasn't until an adult, uh, she was an adult apparently that, uh, she asked her dad about it to confirm that the cows didn't actually go off to summer camp. Yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, and our parents never told us those stories. No, we were just like, <laughs> nope, time for them to, we're going to take them down to the slaughterhouse. They're mm-hmm. going to be cut up and we're going to eat them. So we had to kind of adjust, and one of the ways that they, they helped us adjust to that, like if we had a, a calf that was born, that a heifer that was going to be part of the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? To be to be raised for meat. That no, wasn't going no. to be broodstock. Broodstock, yes. No, that's where I was okay. going. If we had one that was for broodstock, then we would give her a real name. And if it was one that was for meat, then it would became T-burn, a T-bone, sirloin, hamburger. And so we kind of made that uh, distinction early on. And yet they still they still got a name. It was just kind of descriptive. Right. So, <laughs> but uh, one of the solutions, and I actually... Uh, this is the minority view, but it makes more sense to me, given what I know about the way animals are supposed to be treated and also what I know about horses and how we deal with horses even today. So the Hebrew word here for to hamstring is an obscure word. We really don't have a great definition other than to pluck. Yeah. And we actually don't use the word hamstring that much in English anyway. Exactly. It's a weird word. It's a weird word in the Hebrew, but it, it, like I said, it literally means to pluck. So it doesn't specifically tell us what's being plucked, how it's being plucked. It just, something's being plucked. And on the basis of unclear, on the unclear word and all the commands about the treatment of, uh, of animals and not to acquire horses, um, some have argued that a better translation is to geld. And okay. so, which makes total sense when you realize the horses that pull the chariots, traditionally they were all stallions. And so one of the things that even today, if you have a a stud horse, a stallion used Mm. for breeding purposes and they, they, they're worth so much money Mm. and they're worth more than a mare because, you know, how many foals can you get from a stallion or a good stud horse versus a mare? She's just not going to be able to keep up with the same level of production. Sure. And so, um, to even just to geld these stallions would make them unable to be chariot horses now. And it would also, it, it's cutting off those bloodlines mm-hmm. and those bloodlines that they used in for these animals, for this particular usage or this particular job, they would have been highly protected. And if you mm-hmm. ever read the history of like uh, the Arabian breed and how they, I mean, those were not oh, chariot yeah. horses and how much care was put into maintaining certain bloodlines you would realize how central taking care of these... Well, even today, we still have some of those bloodlines. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing when you start looking at this. We've got better family trees on horses than we do people. <laughs> we really do. And it's kind of it, it's kind of crazy. And so, but this is something that has not... Uh, this isn't new. This is something that's gone back for millennia because mm-hmm. horses... It, 
who can look at a horse and not just think how beautiful they are? Or, you know, they're just kind of an awe-inspiring creature. And so... Especially when you're standing right next to like a like a big sixteen hand horse. Yeah, that, these probably weren't that tall, but yeah, yeah, I know. But I'm just thinking, like, you're talking about just being inspired by like just because they're just these massive, powerful creatures that move very gracefully, and it's it's a very, I mean, uh, and it, they want it's, it's so bizarre. I don't know, like what what the human reaction, like what like. Well, and they want to be friends with us and they want to interact with us. And, you know, I, and I could go on and on about horses because, you know, our dad, he, he worked horses. My daughter is great with horses. She got that from him. Uh, Horses have always been a part of our world. And when you get that horse that just, I mean, they, they get it. Mm -hmm. It's almost magical. And there's something about being able to set on this massive animal and with just the slight move of your wrist, get that horse to do and move the way you want it to. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so for me, and maybe this is just because I like the idea better and I can't imagine (laughs) David crippling thousands of horses. Um, I I think gelding is a better translation. I think it's more in keeping with the attitude of the Torah about animals in general. And so I I do like that. So uh, and again, not something that's going to change your theology, right? It's just it's it's one of the minor details that you could have a preferential translation, mm-hmm. and if you're proven wrong, we haven't lost yeah, God um, exactly. And, and and the thing is, it's not God who did it. it. David did it, and if David did it and he was wrong, then he and God have to work that out. The Bible doesn't tell us whether or not God approved or disapproved. Right. It just simply says this is what David did. And I think that's one of the big things that people who have an objection to the Bible never make that distinction between what is recorded and what God approves of and what God sponsors. And mm-hmm. so we, we need to be very careful with that. So um, we, we are going to get more into the story specifically, but we do have within this chapter— Uh, when I say specifically, it's later on in the Bible. In this chapter, we're told that um, the Syrians came down to help Hadezer, but David killed 22,000 of their men. And so David solidifies this victory over Hadezer and the, the Syrians by establishing garrisons all the way to Damascus. And those people that were allowed to survive... They pay tribute to David, and one of the tributes that um, they pay is, according to the ESV, it's it's gold shields, but most likely this isn't gold shields. It's uh, the word there is closer to the Aramaic word for a quiver, and so the point is David takes gold back to Jerusalem, and we're also told that David takes a lot of bronze to Jerusalem, and in Chronicles, it's even noted that this bronze in particular is what Solomon uses to make the bronze lake in the temple later. And in the middle of all this, um, we're told in verse 6, God is giving um, David victory all around. So we're, you know, for for a chapter we weren't going to spend much time on, we're actually going to have to get into more of it next week. Okay. But... Um, that's, a, that's a trend around here. Yeah. And so but the point is, when David is winning these victories, they're decisive victories. They are not the little individual skirmishes that Samson had. Mm-hmm. They're not these, um, you know, just kind of pushing them back a little bit, keeping these people from invading and encroaching on the territory of Israel, 
kind of like Saul was doing. Right. David is actually making headway, and he is fulfilling these promises and the prophecies that God had given to every great leader of Israel along the way. And, you know, it's taken thousands of years mm-hmm. for this to happen, but it is happening. And I think one of the things we need to remember, too, is can you imagine where your whole identity and your whole history has been wrapped up in these promises that God made back these thousands of years ago, and now you're seeing it happen? Mm-hmm. How elated must David be? And this really explains why he's able to go, hey, you're doing it. You're finally doing it. Okay, right. I'm going to ask for more. And it makes that prayer make more sense. Right. So anyway, I think that's probably a good spot for us to to put a pause button. Okay, so. yeah, we'll, we'll break there and, and come back and, and finish this chapter out and I guess get into nine, get into Mephibosheth. Yeah. So that's going to be kind of an interesting story. I like that one. But if you want to be part of the conversation um, out there, hit us up on the uh, social media, Raven Creek SC or ravencreeksc.com is the website uh, where you can find more information about this show, about us. Uh, you can find Luke T. Harrington, the Change My Mind. You can find Joshua Sherman with Tending Our Nets and Joe Zaragoza with the commentarians. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Emily's there. Sometimes I'm there. Um, but it's a lot of fun. So in the meantime, we'll see you on the internet. So bye. bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.